Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this encore edition of Bina, our guest is author Tommy Orange, who appeared in 2018 to discuss his debut novel, There There. Then at the end of the hour, U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo performs her poetry in song. But now, join Stephanie Singer as she introduces Tommy Orange. Born and raised in Oakland and an enrolled member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma, Tommy Orange is part of a new generation of writers who are publishing groundbreaking poetry, fiction, and prose, shattering old tropes and stereotypes about Native American literature, experience, and identity. Tommy is a recent graduate of the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts, a 2014 McDowell Fellow, and a 2016 Writing by Writers Fellow. There There is his first novel. It's already a New York Times bestseller. Yes, congratulations. And it's been called, quote, groundbreaking and extraordinary and hailed as, quote, the year's most galvanizing debut novel. So it goes without saying that it is the it book. And we are so delighted to be presenting Tommy to you and to all of us at this moment, very exciting moment in his career. Let's give him all a a very warm welcome. Thank you for that introduction, and uh, thank you all for coming. Um, So uh, I'm just going to read a little bit, and um, it's from the chapter in the novel called Thomas Frank, which was published in The New Yorker as The State. Um, So I'm going to read that right now. Thomas Frank. Before you were born... You were a head and a tail in a milky pool, a swimmer. You were a race, a dying off, a breaking through, an arrival. Before you were born, you were an egg and your mom who was an egg and her mom. Before you were born, you were the nested Russian grandmother doll of possibility in your mom's ovaries. You were two halves of a thousand different kinds of possibilities, a million heads or tails, flip shine on a spun coin before you were born you were the idea to make it to california for gold or bust you were white you were brown you were red you were dust you were hiding you were seeking before you were born you were chased beaten broken trapped on a reservation in oklahoma before you were born you were an idea your mom got into her head in the 70s to hitchhike across the country and become a dancer in new york You were on your way when she did not make it across the country, but sputtered and spiraled and wound up in Taos, New Mexico at a peyote commune named Morningstar. Before you were born, you were your dad's decision to move away from the reservation up to northern New Mexico to learn about a Pueblo guy's fireplace. You were the light in the wet of your parents' eyes as they met across that fireplace in ceremony. Before you were born, your halves inside them moved to Oakland, 
before you were born, before your body was much more than heart, spine, bone, brain, skin, blood, and vein, when you just started to build muscle with movement, before you showed, bulged in her belly, as her belly, before your dad's pride could belly swell from the side of you, your parents were in a room listening to the sound your heart made. You had an arrhythmic heartbeat. The doctor said it was normal. Your arrhythmic heart was not abnormal. Maybe he's a drummer, your dad said. He doesn't even know what a drum is, your mom said. Heart, your dad said. The man said arrhythmic, that means no rhythm. Maybe it just means he knows the rhythm so good he doesn't always hit it when you expect him to. Rhythm of what, she said. But once you got big enough to make your mom feel you, she couldn't deny it. You swam to the beat. When your dad brought out the kettle drum, you'd kick her in time with it, or to her heartbeat, or to one of the oldies mixtapes she had made from records she loved and played to no end in your Aerostar minivan. Once you were out in the world running and jumping and climbing, you tapped your toes and fingers everywhere, all the time, on tabletops, desktops. You tapped every surface you found in front of you, listened for the sound things made back at you when you when you hit them, the timbre of taps, the din of dings, silverware clangs in kitchens, door knocks, knuckle cracks, head scratches. You were finding out that everything makes a sound. Everything can be drumming, whether rhythm is kept or strays, even gunshots and backfire, the howl of trains at night, the wind against your windows. The world is made of sound. But inside every kind of sound lurked a sadness, in the quiet between your parents, after a fight they both managed to lose. You and your sisters listening through the walls for tones, listening for early signs of a fight, for late signs of a fight reignited. The sound of the worship service, that building drone and wail of evangelical Christian worship, your mom speaking in tongues on the crest of that weekly Sunday wave. Sadness because you couldn't feel any of it in there and wanted to, felt you needed it that it could protect you from the dreams you had almost every night about the end of the world and the possibility of hell forever. You living there, still a boy, unable to die or leave or do anything but burn in a lake of fire. Sadness came when you had to wake up your snoring dad in church, even as members of the congregation, members of your family were being slain by the Holy Ghost in the aisles right next to him. Sadness came when the days got shorter at the end of summer, when the street got quiet without kids out anymore, in the color of that fleeting sky, sadness lurked. Sadness pounced, slid in between everything, anything it could find its way into, through sound, through you. You didn't think of any of the tapping or knocking as drumming until you actually started drumming many years later. It would have been good to know that you'd always done something naturally, but there was too much going on with everyone, in your, everyone else in your family for anyone to notice. You should probably have done something else with your fingers and toes than tap with your mind and time, then knock at all the surfaces in your life like you were looking for a way in. Thank you. Yeah, hi. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about your life and background and growing up and how you got to where you are? Well... (laughs) So, life story, briefly... Um, 
you know, I grew up in Oakland, and uh, my much like uh, you know, I kind of just did it right there with that <laughs> piece of Thomas Frank. Um, my name is Thomas Frank Orange. I named that chapter. Um, that was one of my most autobiographical moments in the book, and it came out way late into the process. Um, and it has to do with with um, where my parents met. They met at a peyote commune in northern New Mexico. Um, my mom is white from Oakland, and my dad is from Oklahoma. Um, he's Cheyenne. And, um, you know, I grew up knowing both of those things and uh, we grew up going back to Oklahoma to visit family and my dad's a um, he didn't speak English until he was five or even see a white person until he was five so he's from and he was raised by his his great grandparents so he's from a certain part of being Indian that uh, that goes way back and um, he didn't he also had a lot of pain from where he came from, so he didn't raise us. He rose us in Oakland, um, just was on a street with uh, like six different families, kids my age, all biracial from a lot of different backgrounds. And I started working in the um, urban Indian community in my 20s in Oakland. And um, I didn't write or read as a kid. No one ever told me that I was that I should uh, study or w- there was never even a conversation about college. It was like, don't do what your older sisters are doing, which is getting involved in gangs and drugs. Uh, it was a very baseline, like success meant not messing up really bad. <laughs> um, so I succeeded and barely graduated high school. Um, and I was really into roller hockey and just not sports. I, I knew I could, you know, as an athlete, I could perform. And like I said, nobody ever told me to do anything else. Um, and then I, I went to school for sound engineering. I became a musician in my early 20s and um, got a job at Ease Bookstore after I realized there was no job prospects after getting a job in, uh, after getting a Bachelor's of Science in the Sound Arts, which is the most ridiculous sounding degree. Um, <laughs> So I got a, I was like reading philosophy and um, religious texts and searching for meaning. Um, was raised with my dad going to Native American church ceremony and sort of being a road man. My mom being Christian evangelical and uh, thinking the world was going to end my whole life um, and that I was going to end up in hell. Um, so stopped believing that at a very early age, but it was a big hole burned in that uh, I needed to fill and so I stumbled into fiction while working at a used bookstore where the woman hired me I'm pretty sure because she knew I could move a lot of books and she wanted to consolidate two big warehouses into one (laughs) so I was just like you know I was moving sections of books and getting rid of we would just I would just be carrying a lot of books out to get rid of them Um, and I realized I love fiction what it can do what the novel can do specifically um, and once I realized that, I started writing into it. That was in about 2005, um, and spent the, you know a lot of years just trying to hone on a craft level, and then eventually six years on the actual novel. 
Um, so Kafka and Borges were really like early ones that caught my attention because because I was reading like philosophy and religion. They're sort of a perfect bridge. Um, also Clarice Lispector, she's a Brazilian um, writer uh, who's gotten a little more attention in the past couple of years. Um, her novel, The Hour of the Star, is amazing. It's only like 90 pages. Everyone should read it. Um, so there's a lot of work in translation that I got into first. Um, people that I felt were um, including some of these questions. As a young, you know, in my 20s, just wanting to know, um, in search of meaning, like I said, um, who are also artfully sort of exploring it and not just like in a dry philosophical text or in a religious text. Um, those are my early influences. Uh, I I can't just start spouting out names of people that I love. Those were their, that was like the pivotal moment. I just want to say this is one of the best books I've read this year, and I do read about 300 books a year. And I just want to know how you got all of those lives entwined, how you kept them straight and bought them together and wove them together in, I visioned a basket. So they all came together at the Coliseum. And I'd like, just like to know how you kept them all straight and how you realized them all so beautifully. Well, thank you for, for saying that. Um, I thought of the idea first sort of the container of what I was going to write into and and just sort of the structure for the whole thing and then spent six years writing into it. Um, it was really messy in the middle and um, I wish I had easy answers as to how to <laughs> do what I did. Um, there was a lot of different strategies I put in place to to not give up. Um, so I ran a lot. I made sure and put in the time, you know, in front of the page. I read out loud, read a lot of my stuff out loud. I'd print it out and read out loud and mark it up with a pen. Um, I had robot voices from an app called Voice Dream read to me while I did other stuff. Um, and that gave me fresh perspective on um, just wanting to to get it true and right and get the voices distinct and uh, make sure all their stories had like organic feeling um, cohesive ties to a whole vision because there's a lot of voices and uh, there's the risk of it not feeling cohesive so it was um, it was six years of of a lot of work in a lot of different ways when you were writing the the stories did they go in the order in which they're published or did you have to move them around later Oh, there's a lot of moving. Um, and there was a lot of um, point of view transposition for each character. Um, I've been telling people, and this is only in retrospect, that I feel like I sort of cheated um, in making each character and chapter distinct by changing point of view. Um, not only by... You have to think about your sentence structure and how short and long your sentences are and how distinct the quality of your voice is. Um, that's one way to do it. If you stay in first person through the whole book, it'd be more confusing. So I thought um, bring 
POV change in addition to character change. And just to be sure, if you're going to experiment with a lot of characters, at least, you know, always make sure that you have the reader um, able to navigate the work. Um, I had that in mind. So You have a great gift for sound. The words are beautiful. Um, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the way you hear words and your experience in music and stuff like that? It's been a weird thing. A couple surprising things regarding feedback from about the book. Um, musicali- musicality and, and the work being funny. Um, I wasn't trying to do either one in the process. The first time I, I read certain parts of the book that um, are funny, uh, I, was, I didn't know what was happening when I heard people... You know, my first thought is, like, they're laughing at me. And for some reason, that's horrible. Um, so the musicality piece, I don't know. You know, I, I, I fell in love with the piano. Well, first the guitar at 18 and then the piano at 21. And I spent a lot of time um, just exploring composition. And um, I love to play, but it's totally separate from my writing process. And I don't go to the page thinking I'm doing music. You know, it's a different, there are two different processes. Process, I. I think there's some bleeding over it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great to hear when people say that. But just as far as what I was consciously doing, um, I didn't have it in mind. I was just really curious about um, a sentence you said a few questions ago about realizing what the novel could do and I want to hear more about your thoughts on that um so I was eating a donut (laughs) and I was on a break from this bookstore that I had referenced and I was reading Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole and I was about a I had trouble with the first 50 pages of that book um the first time I read it I've read that book four times um, but something I was maybe like on page 115 and he was in, in the middle of a, like a journal entry thing on a le- yellow legal tab and he was talking about Bothius um, the philosopher um, and I just realized how much you could do with a novel and how um, there aren't any rules in regards to form and structure and I mean the novel it's named I think because it's related to experimentation and representing each now voice of every new year or season um, or generation of writers and so for me that was a moment when I realized that was one moment there's been a bunch with a bunch of different novels like The Hour of the Star was a a big moment for me, novel-wise. And Colin McCann's Let the Great World, World Spin was a big moment. Uh, structurally, Like uh, he did something amazing in that book that very much influenced what I wanted to try to do in regards to weaving um, multiple perspectives together in a, in a story arc that all like had an organic connection and had a cohesion. 
You're listening to author Tommy Orange, who appeared in 2018 to discuss his debut novel, There There, on Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Well, I le- I've always liked prologues before novels, um, which are part of novels. Um, just the way it can contextualize the story you're about to jump into. I also like, like prologues because um, you, for readers who don't like them, you can skip it and go into the story. And maybe you'll go back to it later. It's fine. Um, but as Native people, uh, I think... We'd, we're constantly doing the work of trying to correct people's thoughts about what happened or what we are now. Or There's just so many misconceptions and a crushing monolithic vision of what it's supposed to mean to be Native or what it, you know, in history, what it's meant. So I wanted to try to write something compelling that addressed um, history. You know, my only research was on the Internet, um, and I pulled from things that anybody could look up if they wanted to. But I wanted to put it in a compelling way that even if a Native person who already knew this information, um, it could be compelling for for anybody reading it. Um, I think art in, in a time of the information age and fake news plays an important role in trying to make information compelling um, because we all have access to too much information. So um, if we can make information artful and and pointed in a way that has purpose, um, that's what I was trying to do with the prologue. Uh, You spoke uh, earlier about the sort of hole that was there after you did not believe any longer in what you had been religiously brought up with. And I was curious about... What filled that hole? What was woven? What was the sort of self-creation of any spirituality that might have come up? And a second short question was, as a Pakistani-American writer and as a Muslim writer, I feel that sort of burden of representation a lot. And also this idea of, is my story worth telling? And um, I just wondered how you came to that. How did you find your voice and say, these are stories that are needed? and should be told and come into your own in that way. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the whole... Um, the short answer is is that fiction and writing filled it, but that's not entirely true because as much as I love fiction and believe in its power, it's not enough, or my hole was too big, I don't know. Um, you know, I think in some ways I'm still trying to figure out, um, my parents are both still fanatics. Um, they both are now part of the Native American church and, um, and I respect and love their beliefs, but I grew up like almost every night I dreamed of the end of the world. Um, so it's a really intense you know, I didn't even believe in Jesus. 
I didn't even believe in Christianity. I was just afraid that it could possibly be true. And the idea of absolute pain and torture in a lake of fire or whatever for eternity is like the worst thing ever. And to sort of like use that fear piece to manipulate people into believing. Um, I only got to the torment aspect of it. I never, it never convinced me to believe. Um, but my parents both, they don't both believe like that exactly, but I was raised in that world. Um, and they both have a very intense belief in God and that I respect. Um, so it's kind of a, that's a big one to try to answer. Um, and I'm still trying to, to answer it myself. I'm working on a uh, semi-autobiographical family novel that digs into a lot of that stuff. So um, I don't have a great answer for that piece. Um, and I've forgotten the second part of your question. <laughs> the burden of representation. Um, the I mean, as a writer of color myself, just this idea of how did you come to owning your voice, feeling like these stories should be heard, and also dealing with that burden, basically. I think the burden of representation um, as an urban native person has come in retrospect. Now that, you know, the book's doing well, um, it feels like now, like, there's going to be this question of, like, well, he's the voice and it's not something that I want. Um, What I was writing into was an absence of voice. I couldn't find very much representation as far as uh, from the perspective of native people living in the city um, from Oakland, there aren't you know any Oakland novels that I know of. There's not urban Indian novels that I know of. If they exist, there's not enough. I don't know distribution or however books get out. I haven't been able to find them. Um, so I was writing into a void um, and out of a, a sense of loneliness. I wasn't writing like, I'm going to be the one to do it and I have a burden. It was just like, oh, this isn't there. Like, our community is so strong and alive. Um, I want to do my best to try to represent some aspect of that. That segues into my question. Um, I I did a guest gig at IAIA, and um, one of the things that was really profound for me there was because I'm read as a person of color in America, though I'm first-generation African. And so the way that folks there were talking about being colonized as opposed to being people of color in the United States was really interesting to me. And I was just interested in your experience, that impact on being there surrounded by Native Indigenous writers working on this um, working on this book. Well, I think um, it's really cool to have an institution um, – that's supporting Native voices. I think something that I've heard from students and from peers in the program is this idea of not having to explain yourself. And there's, you know, writing as an institution has been so white for so long, and the authority on what is good writing is related to white male experience specifically. And there's this false idea of like, this is what makes good writing like Hemingway and Carver. And, um, 
they have their values, but they've been taught as gospel. And different types of diverse experiences bring uh, changes to form and changes to craft-level stuff that's not respected in a lot of these white institutions. So something cool about the Institution of American Indian Arts is that none of that stuff is questioned or it's not filtered through this, this is the way to have good writing, like write a scene, you know, get specific within a scene, don't include cultural or gender or... But if you don't include that stuff, the default is white male. So you have to find, like, good ways to include the stuff. It can be clumsy to have to do it, and it's a burden that white males don't have. But we have to do it. Resistance to this long-standing institution of white male supremacy um, depends on it. Um, I'm amazed. I'm very, I'm an older person. My sister here is, we've been through the arts for many decades and um, we are thrilled because one of our ancestors has returned to help us out in this times we're in. And what I've read so far is just I have to stop and soak it in because there's so much of it that is healing for us. Um, the one, the one thing that uh, really struck me in the prologue, I mean, just bam, you know. If I was a weaker person, I think I would have dropped the book. Um, but we're all very strong because we've been through hell on this earth, especially um, our generations. But the one about the quiet of the reservation, um, everybody remember in the prologue where it says it's easier when you can see and hear it near you, the fast metal, the constant firing around you, cars up and down the street and freeways like bullets. The quiet of the reservation, the side of the highway towns, rural communities, that kind of silence just makes the sound of your brain on fire that much more pronounced. And I wondered if you realized that Addressing historical trauma in a way that line itself helped me, like cards falling into place for me. Just that line. And I wonder, I think, does he realize it? And I think, well, it's all that medicine your father ate, or, you know, is it the wind? Is it, and, and the fact that you, I'm always saying we belong everywhere, but there's always that part of us that. Society makes sure we don't really believe it anymore. Like we're second class, disenfranchised in our own home, you know. And I just wondered if you had those crescendo moments in yourself because you're so brilliant and powerful with no apologies. And that's how, you know, as I'm reading these, I'm like, yeah. I mean, it just, you're speaking for so many of us because we are brilliant. You know, that very first character and how we see him, and how, you know, I, I just, I, I just, I guess I wonder if you realize it, if you, that you, it's like the Pandora's box for other cultures, but it's just, you've uncapped it, and I am so inspired, I'm, you know, this, I've had breakfast with him, and I said, I'm writing my book now, and I haven't actually pulled up a pen, but, um, <laughs> but I carried around one for decades, and it was that line, and that and this that made me realize what I was holding back, 
So I want to thank you for that because this is so healing for us. And I appreciate you so much. And I remember what I said on Saturday. I, it, it happened that night. Your book has been all over the place since I've seen you last, and it will continue. So thank you. Thank you. Do you realize that? that was a <laughs> you know, I was. I had to spend like six hours with people from PBS today. Um, getting asked a lot of questions um, and feeling like questions not necessarily I'm happy for the press and whatever PBS will put out but um, sometimes people don't get it um, and I didn't write it for I wrote it for people like yeah I wrote it for us and um, it's, it's hard when you get a whole bunch of questions in succession of like not really getting um, what the whole thing means and where we come from and so it means a lot to me for you to say that and um, the reception from the native community is means everything to me because that's that's where my heart was and that's what I was trying to dig into and and where I felt uh you know, a lot of like not me coming through. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, the reception f- from without has been crazy and I don't understand it. Um, but I appreciate that. Thank you for your words. Can you talk a little bit about Oakland and how it influenced you and if you were treating Oakland as its own separate character in the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I love Oakland, and uh, it's my home. Um, and the book is so much about belonging and how do we feel like we can love what we are and where we're from. Um, so, you know, I had one Oakland experience, one type of Oakland and Native experience, and I tried to write into that. And uh, other people that I, you know, the spirit of people that I knew who are from Oakland and, and who are native. Um, so definitely, like, I don't know if I ever thought, like, I'm writing a character of Oakland, but um, I wrote half the book when I wasn't living in Oakland. And um, I just have, I mean, anybody who knows me and, you know, anybody from Oakland themselves, there's a love for Oakland as a city. It's got a it's got a certain kind of hard-earned love and spirit um, that I tried to capture in the... I don't like capture as a word. Um, that I tried to acknowledge in the book. Where did you go to high school? So um, I went to Bishop O'Dowd and got kicked out. Um, got kicked out? <laughs> went or got kicked out or both? or. Oh, cool. I come from a tradition of getting kicked out of that school. My uh, my older sister got kicked out. My One of my best friends um, growing up on the same street as me got kicked out. His older brother got kicked out. We all got kicked out for different reasons. I just didn't go. I mean, I, you know, I was I was driving my niece to daycare and my sister to 
work every day before school and I missed, I was tardy a lot. Um, but I also didn't care. I, you know, I was not interested in anything um, that had to do with school. Thank you also um, for writing about this experience. Um, my name is Hadesba, um, it's Danae. And so um, my experience of being an urban Native person who is mixed also, but I identify Native with my Diné, Wyandotte, and Cherokee background is um, uh, it's at times overwhelming, especially when I have to introduce myself. And then I get a lot of, oh, wow, what is that? And, of course, the last thing, well, no one's ever going to guess. So then it comes with a lot of stuff, like, oh, how much are you? Oh, I uh, I think I have you know my great great grandma blah 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 and I have a pottery collection. Do you want to see it? It's Hopi, and I'm thinking I'm not Hopi. Um, all this stuff, right? It's when you're really public when you say it, and and it's all of a sudden it's sometimes so overwhelming. I'm just curious about what is your experience being in this very public place, um, and re- and yeah, the burden of representing the group and representing yourself, how is that? Is it a burden or have you felt it ever or does it not bother you? What is your experience like? In the craziest way, um, I've felt completely embraced by the Native community around the book and its reception and people who have read it. And um, the non-Native community, specifically white people, um, continue to ask super problematic questions all the time. Um, and like this question of like, well, are you native? And then I'll say yes. And then, yeah, well, how much? Um, which, you know, it's a complicated question and answer because we've had native authors who have, you know, have illegitimate claims or dubious claims at best and there are people who are doing like 23andMe and Ancestry.com and like you know you don't grow up around it um, and then all of a sudden you have a percentage to talk about and there's a lot of um, dicey areas to go into in regards to blood and how much uh, allows you to legitimately claim it but the fact that we have to get into that conversation as a people uh, is super painful. Like, um, the fact that people think in order for us to look native, we have one image and it's on the jersey. It's a headdress image. It's probably a long birdish nose and they're probably looking off. Um, into the faraway past. Um, you know, like, a lot of people of color have this thing, like, it, if you don't know enough people of color, you think they all look alike, of whatever, different kinds. We don't have the same thing. We have the, if you don't look like this one monolithic image, then you're not Native. You know, Donald, Donald Trump said it in court, famously, um, like, you don't look Native American to me. But what does that look like? The The fact that you don't think I look native, that just means you don't know enough native people because I look just like my dad. And he, there's nobody more native looking than my dad. He's very native looking. Um, 
So, like, putting the blame on, you know, people on us, that you don't know what Native people look like, you don't think we have a range and a spectrum, uh, you don't know how how messy the history is, that's all on you. And you're trying to say how much, like, the burden of proof is on me? This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who have spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guest is author Tommy Orange, who appeared in 2018 to discuss his debut novel, There There. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. Okay, we're getting a request if we can close with a little reading. That's okay. If you all, yeah. Okay, I'm just going to read a little part. Um, This is when one of my characters is on Alcatraz. Um, And when you hear the character Two Shoes being talked about, it's her teddy bear. Um, So she's 11 during the occupation on Alcatraz. Um, And Jackie is her sister. Her name's Opal. Jackie got on a lot better than me. She fell in with a group of teenagers that ran all over the island. The adults were so busy there was no way for them to keep track. I hung by my mom's side. We went around talking to people attending official meetings where everyone tried to agree on what to do, what to ask for, what our demands would be. The more important-seeming Indians tended to get mad more easily. These were the men. And the women weren't listened to as much as our mom would have liked. Those first days went by like weeks. It felt like we were going to stay out there for good, get the feds to build us a school and medical facility and cultural center. At some point, though, my mom told me to go out and see what Jackie was up to. I didn't want to go out there alone, but eventually I got bored enough and went out to see what I could find. I took two shoes with me. I know I'm too old to have him. I'm almost 12. But I took him anyway. I went down to the other side of the lighthouse where it seemed like you weren't supposed to go. I found them by the shore closest to the Golden Gate. They were all over the rocks, pointing at each other and laughing in that wild, cruel way teenagers have about them. I told Two Shoes it probably wasn't such a good idea and that we should just go back. Sister, you don't have to worry. All these people, even these young ones over here, they're all our relatives, so don't be scared. Plus, if anyone comes after you, I'll jump down and bite their ankles. They would never expect that. I'll use my sacred bear medicine on them. It'll put them to sleep. It'll be like instantaneous hibernation. That's what I'll do, sister, so don't worry. Creator made me strong to protect you, Two-Shoes said. I told Two-Shoes to stop talking like an Indian. I don't know what you mean by talking like an Indian, he said. You're not an Indian, T.S., you're a teddy bear. You know, we're not so different. Both of us got our names from pig brain men. Pig brain? Men with pigs for brains. Oh, meaning 
Columbus called you Indians. For us, it was Teddy Roosevelt's fault. How? He was hunting bear one time, but then found this real scraggly old hungry bear, and he refused to shoot it. Then in the newspapers, there was a comic about that hunting story that made it seem like Mr. Roosevelt was merciful, a real nature lover, that kind of thing. Then they made the little stuffed bear and named it Teddy's Bear. Teddy's Bear became Teddy Bear. What they didn't say was that he slit that old bear's throat. It's that kind of mercy they don't want you to know about. And how do you know about any of this? You got to know about the history of your people, how you got to be here. That's all based on what people done to get you here. Us bears, you Indians, we've been through a lot. They tried to kill us. But when you hear them tell it, they make history seem like one big heroic adventure across an empty forest. There were bears and Indians all over the place, sister. They slit all our throats. Why do I feel like mom told us all this already, I said. Roosevelt said I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. Damn T.S., that's messed up. I only heard the one about the big stick. That big stick is the lie about mercy. Speak softly and carry a big stick. That's what he said about foreign policy. That's what they used on us, bears and Indians both, foreigners on our own land. And with their big sticks, they marched us so far west we almost disappeared. And two shoes went quiet. That's the way it was with him. He either had something to say or he didn't. I could tell by what kind of shine I saw in the black of his eyes, which one it was. I put two shoes behind some rocks and headed down to find my sister. Thank you. You've been listening to author Tommy Orange, who appeared in 2018 to discuss his debut novel, There, There. We finish this hour with a performance by U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2019. Her most recent collection of poetry is An American Sunrise, and her new memoir, Poet Warrior, will be published in September 2021. So this next piece is kind of a version of a um, creation story, a Muskogean creation story where we emerged. Probably we emerge, we keep emerging from these worlds we keep destroying. This is a soprano sax. It's not a fancy clarinet. (laughs) I usually play alto, but I've been taking my soprano out for some fun. (laughs) I have a a poem I'm not reading tonight called Rabbit Invents the Saxophone. It must have, because Rabbit's trickster, and you know a saxophone can be a trickster instrument. It's called Once the World is Perfect. Once the world is perfect And we were happy in this world Then we took it for granted 
Discontent began a small rumble in the earthly mind. Then doubt pushed through with its spiked head. And once doubt ruptured the web, all manner of demon thoughts jumped through. We destroyed the world we had been given for inspiration for life. Each stone of jealousy, each stone of fear, great envy, jealousy put out the light. No one was without a stone in his or her hand. There we were, right back where we had started. We were bumping into each other in the dark, and now we had no place to live because we didn't know how to live with each other. Then one of the stumbling ones took pity on another and shared a blanket. A spark of kindness made a light. The light made an opening in the darkness. Everyone worked together to make a ladder. A wind clan person climbed out first into the next world. And then the other clans, the children of those clans, their children and their children and their children, all the way through time to right now to you.
So I was talking a little bit about the the trickster rabbit in a Muscogee Creek Nation is uh, is rabbit. The trickster, <laughs> our trickster is rabbit. There are a lot of them. Um, some of them are, I guess, in some cultures it's coyote. Some it's spider. And um, you know, we all have clowns, tricksters, and you often find them sitting somewhere near the seat of power, because one, you know, they because they're there to remind us that any power that we have doesn't belong to us. It's given to share. And though sometimes in strange times like these, uh, the tricksters wind up sitting in the seats of power. And then you know you're in trouble. <laughs> so this is um, kind of along the creation story version, but it's about rabbit, again, rabbit showing up and what happened. Or should I say what's happening? In a world long before this one, there was enough for everyone until somebody got out of line. We heard it was rabbit fooling around with clay in the wind. Everybody was tired of his tricks and no one would play with him. And he was lonely in this world. So rabbit thought to make a person. And when he blew into the mouth, that crude figure to see what would happen the clay man stood up rabbit showed the clay man how to steal a chicken the clay man obeyed then he showed him how to steal corn the clay man obeyed then he showed him how to steal someone else's wife and that clay man obeyed rabbit felt important and powerful and Clay man felt important and powerful and once that clay man started, he could not stop. Once he took that chicken, he wanted all the chickens. Once he took that corn, he wanted all the corn. And once he took that wife, he wanted all the wives. He was insatiable. Then he had a taste of gold. He wanted all the gold. Soon it was land. Or anything else he saw, his wanting only made him want more. Soon it was countries, then it was trade. The wanting infected the earth. We lost track of our stories. We could no longer see or hear our ancestors or talk with each other across the kitchen table. Forest were being mowed down all over the world to make more. And Rabbit had no place left to play. Rabbit's trick had backfired. Rabbit tried to call that clay man back. But when the clay man wouldn't listen, Rabbit realized he'd made a clay man with no ears.
That was U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2019. Her most recent collection of poetry is An American Sunrise, and her new memoir, Poet Warrior, will be published in September 2021. Dina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was author Tommy Orange, who appeared in 2018 to discuss his debut novel, There There. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanim Trio, and the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Thanks for listening.